bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used as sources for our show. And uh, I'll be sharing with you tonight a story from one of these volumes, assisted, as always, by the housekeeper of this estate and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Okay, so uh, we're still dealing with the... Yes. I'm afraid we are. Oh, we could talk about it on the air if that's what you want. Why not? Everything seems to be about the owl these uh, days. Well, the poor thing has to eat. You know I it's... thought she was supposed to eat the rats investing the solarium. I told you. I think she's pretty much cleared them out. I've been going out with a flashlight, and usually you'll hear them run for cover when I enter. But... I can hear her hunting at night. Every night. She's still hunting them. Maybe some, but I wanted to get a start with the backup plan. Every night, the flapping and cackling. I hear it. If you say so. What does that mean? Well, uh, honestly, I'm just wondering about what you're hearing. I mean, your window must be 30 feet away, unless you're throwing your window open in March and leaning out. My God, I wouldn't do that. I don't want to hear all those... Horrible sounds! I just don't hear it from my room. What are you saying? Nothing. It must just be the acoustics. You know, I'm putting up with the noises. That's something I can put up with, but not coming into my kitchen and finding a horror show in my sink! I I thought I had the kitchen to myself. And I thought they were shrimp! Little pink shrimp! You never make dinner. That was strange enough. But then I lean in to see you're not preparing shrimp at all. I realize you've filled up the sink with frozen rats. Well, mice, and they needed defrosting. The poor little things. Just born, then killed and frozen. Where would you even get something like that? Rodentpro.com. They're called pinkies. Pinkies. Is that supposed to be cute? It sounds like a breakfast cereal, not a horrible bag of frozen mice. It's the collar. I threw away the colander you had them in. They were in a sealed bag. I threw it away, not the kitchen trash, outside, out of the house. Look, it was an experiment and it was a mistake. Uh, Strix doesn't even like them. Oh, poor Strix. What's wrong with raw chicken from the grocery if she's killed off all the rats already? They actually don't do well with prepared meat. Anders says they need to swallow feathers and fur and little bones to keep their gut clean. It's sort of like roughage. Roughage? Yes, and those little pinkies, which you won't be seeing anymore, aren't doing the job. They need something with fur. And little bones and skulls to crunch. It's just nature. Well, keep it outside then. Where nature belongs. I I get your point. And uh, this is probably a good point at which to leave off and uh, to start our show. Um, So this will be episode 107, Matthew Lovett, 
the man who crucified himself. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror, folklore, and history. I started the show as a way to further explore these overlapping topics after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and I am currently working on a related volume. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including not one, but two bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. As Easter will soon be upon us and crucifixion in the air, I thought I'd share with listeners a story, one presented as true, of an individual who endured that procedure himself. Not a famous one, of course, but a fellow some 17 centuries later. The story comes from an 1826 collection edited by Henry Wilson called Wonderful Characters Comprising Memoirs and Anecdotes of the Most Remarkable Persons of Every Age and Nation, collected from the most authentic sources. And the fellow in question and chapter heading from that book is Matthew Lovett, who crucified himself. We shall, in this chapter, present our readers with some account of the crucifixion which Matthew Lovett executed upon his own person on the morning of July 19, 1805. He was 46 years of age when he committed this act of pious suicide. His father's name was Mark, and he himself was surnamed Casale, from the place of his birth, which was a hamlet belonging to the parish of Soldo in the territory of Belluno. Before entering upon the details of this strange act of insanity, we must mention some circumstances connected with the earlier part of his life in order to give a clear view of his condition and character, both physical and moral. Born of poor parents employed in the coarsest and most laborious works of husbandry, and fixed to a place which removed him from almost all society, it is easy to judge what was the nature of his education and habits. In these circumstances, it happened that his imagination was so forcibly smitten with the view of the easy and comfortable lives of the rector and his curate, who were the only persons in the whole parish exempted from the labors of the field, and who engrossed all the power in consequence which the little world in which Matthew lived had presented to his eyes, that he was carried by the principle of imitation, as some philosophers would express it, to make an effort to prepare himself for the priesthood. With this design, he placed himself under the tuition of the curate, who taught him to read and to write a little, but the poverty of his family rendering it quite impossible for him to follow his plan, he was obliged to renounce study forever, and to betake himself to the trade of a shoemaker. Having become a shoemaker by necessity, he never succeeded either as a neat or as a quick workman, the ordinary fate of those who are employed contrary to their inclinations. 
The sedentary life and the silence to which apprentices are condemned in the shops of their masters formed in him the habit of meditation and rendered him gloomy and taciturn. As his age increased, he became subject in the spring to giddiness in his head, and eruptions of a leprous appearance showed themselves on his face and hands. Dr. Ruggieri entertained the suspicion that these evils were occasioned by leprosy, and observed, in fact, while Matthew was under his care, that his hands and feet were spotted with scales which came off by friction in white mealy particles. Until the month of July 1802, Matthew Lovett did nothing extraordinary. His life was regular and uniform, his habits were simple and comfortable to his rank in society, nothing, in short, distinguished him but an extreme degree of devotion. He spoke on no other subject than the affairs of the church, its festivals and fasts, sermons, saints, etc., constituted the topics of his conversation. It was at this date, however, that having shut himself up in his chamber and making use of one of the tools belonging to his trade, he performed upon himself the most complete general amputation and threw the parts of which he had deprived his person from the window into the street. This Victorian narrative is a bit delicate about what part that is, but I think you'll be able to figure it out. It has never been precisely ascertained what were the motives which induced him to this unnatural act. Some have supposed that he was impelled to it by the chagrin with which he was seized upon finding his love rejected by a girl of whom he had become enamored. But is it not more reasonable to think, considering the known character of the man, that his timid conscience, taking alarm at some little stirrings of the flesh against the spirit, had carried him to the resolution of freeing himself at once and forever of so formidable an enemy. However this may be, Lovett, in meditating the execution of this barbarous operation, had also thought of the means of cure. He had mashed and prepared certain herbs which the inhabitants of his village deemed efficacious in stemming the flow of blood from wounds, and provided himself with rags of old linen to make the application of his balsam, and, what is surprising, these feeble means were attended with such success that the cure was completed in a very short time, the patient neither experiencing any involuntary loss of urine nor any difficulty in voiding it. It was not possible that a deed of this nature could remain concealed. The whole village resounded with the fame of Matthew's exploit, and everybody expressed astonishment at his speedy cure without the aid of a professional person. But he himself had not anticipated the species of celebrity which the knowledge of his expert operation was to procure for him, and not being able to withstand the bitter jokes which all the inhabitants of the village, and particularly the young people, heaped upon him, he kept himself shut up in his house, from which he did not venture to stir for some time, not even to go to Mass. At length, on the 13th of November in the same year, 
he came to the resolution of going to Venice to dwell with a younger brother named Angelo, who was employed by the House of Palatini gold refiners in Biri, in the street called Le Cordini. He, having no accommodations for him, conducted Matthew to the house of a widow of the late Andrew Osqualda, who supplied him with a bed. She also lived in Biri, in the street called Levido, number 5775. He lodged with this woman until the 21st of September in the following year. Working assiduously at his trade in the employment of a person near the hospital, and without exhibiting any signs of madness. But on the above-mentioned day, having made an attempt to crucify himself in the middle of the street called the Cross of Biri, upon a frame which he had constructed of the timber of his bed, the widow Asqualdi dismissed him, lest he should perform any similar acts of insanity in her apartments. On this occasion, he was prevented from accomplishing his purpose by several people who came upon him just as he was driving the nails into his left foot. Being interrogated repeatedly as to the motive which had induced him to attempt self-crucifixion, he maintained an obstinate silence, or, once only, said to his brother that the day was the festival of St. Matthew, and that he could give no further explanation. In the month of May 1805, he changed his shop and entered into that of Lorenzo della Mora in the street of Zenza St. Marsilian, and to be near the place of his employment, he hired in the beginning of the following July a room in the third floor of a house occupied by Valencia Lucchetta, situated near the church of St. Alvisa, in the street della Monaca number 2888. And up to this date, he was perfectly tranquil. But scarcely was he established in this new abode when his old ideas of crucifixion laid hold of him again. He worked a little every day in forming the instruments of his torture and provided himself with the necessary articles of nails, ropes, bands, the crown of thorns, etc. As he foresaw that it would be extremely difficult to fasten himself securely upon the cross, he made a net of small cords capable of supporting his weight in case he should happen to disengage himself from it. This net he secured at the bottom by fastening it in a knot at the lower extremity of the perpendicular beam, a little below the bracket designed to support his feet, and the other end was stretched to the extremities of the transverse spar, which formed the arms of the cross, so that it had the appearance in front of a purse turned upside down. From the middle of the upper extremity of the net, thus placed, proceeded one rope, and from the point at which the two spars forming the cross intersected each other, a second rope proceeded, both of which were firmly tied to a beam in the inside of the chamber, immediately above the window, of which the parapet was very low, and the length of these ropes was just sufficient to allow the cross to rest horizontally upon the floor of the apartment. These cruel preparations being ended, Matthew proceeded to crown himself with thorns, of which two or three pierce the skin which covers the forehead. Next, with a white handkerchief bound round his loins and thighs, he covered the place formerly occupied by the parts of which he had deprived himself, leaving the rest of his body bare. Then, 
passing his legs between the net and the cross, seating himself upon it, he took one of the nails destined for his hands, of which the point was smooth and sharp, and introducing it into the palm of the left, he drove it by striking its head on the floor until the half of it had appeared through the back of his hand. He now adjusted his feet to the bracket which had been prepared to receive them, the right over the left, and taking a nail five inches and a half long, of which the point was also polished and sharp, and placing it on the upper foot with his left hand, he drove it with a mallet which he held in his right, until it not only penetrated both his feet, but entering the hole prepared for it in the bracket, made its way so far through the tree of the cross as to fasten the victim firmly to it. He planted the third nail in his right hand as he had managed with regard to the left, and, having bound himself by the middle to the perpendicular of the cross by a cord, which he had previously stretched under him, he set about inflicting the wound in his side with a cobbler's knife, which he had placed by him for this operation. It did not occur to him, however, at the moment, that the wound ought to be in the right side and not the left, and in the cavity of the breast and not the lower rib cage where he inflicted it. He struck himself transversely two inches below the left rib toward the internal angle of the abdominal cavity, without, however, injuring the parts which the cavity contains. As whether fear checked his hand, or whether he intended to plunge the instrument to a great depth by avoiding the hard and resisting parts, it is not easy to determine. But there were observed in the neighborhood of the wound several scratches across his body which scarcely divided the skin. It seems probable that he scratched his side in this manner when probing for a place that would present no obstacle to his knife, which, according to Matthew Lovett, represented the spear of the passion. These bloody operations being concluded, it was now necessary, in order to complete the execution of the whole plan which he had conceived, that Matthew should exhibit himself upon the cross to the eyes of the public, and he realized this part of it in the following way. The cross was laid horizontally on the floor, its lower extremity resting upon the parapet of the window, which, as has already been said, was very low. So, raising himself up by pressing upon the points of his fingers, for the nails did not allow him to use his whole hand, either open or closed, he made several springs forward until the portion of the cross, which was protruded over the parapet, overbalancing what was within the chamber, the whole frame with the poor fanatic upon it darted out of the window. and remained suspended outside of the house by the ropes which were secured to the beam in the inside. In this predicament, Lovett stretched his hands to the extremities of the transverse beam which formed the arms of the cross to insert the nails into the holes which had been prepared for them. But whether it was out of his power to fix both, or whether he was obliged to use the right in some concluding operation, the fact is that, when he was seen by the people who passed in the street, he was suspended under the window with only his left hand nailed to the cross, while his right hung parallel to his body on the outside of the net. It was then 
eight o'clock in the morning. As soon as he was perceived, some humane people ran upstairs, disengaged him from the cross, and put him to bed. A surgeon of the neighborhood was called, who made them plunge his feet into water, introduced tow by the way of Caldus into the wound of the chest, which he assured them did not penetrate into the cavity, and, after having prescribed some cordial, instantly took his departure. It happened that Dr. Ruggieri, to whom we owe the above account, was called to the spot by some business connected with his profession. Having heard what had taken place, he instantly repaired to the lodgings of Lovett to witness with his own eyes a fact which appeared to exceed all belief. And when he arrived there in company with the surgeon, Paganoni, he actually beheld him wounded in the manner described. His feet, from which there had issued but a small quantity of blood, were still in the water. His eyes were shut. He made no reply to the questions which were addressed to him. His pulse was convulsive. Respiration had become difficult. His situation, in short, demanded the most prompt relief and assistance that could be administered. Accordingly, with the permission of the director of the police of the Royal Canal, who had come to take cognizance of what had happened, Dr. Ruggieri caused the patient to be conveyed by water to the Imperial Clinical School established at the Hospital of St. Luke and St. John, and entrusted to his care. During the passage, the only thing he said was to his brother Angelo, who accompanied him in the boat, which was, Alas, I am very unfortunate. When they arrived at the hospital, Dr. Ruggieri proceeded to a fresh examination of his wounds, which confirmed his previous impressions. It was perfectly ascertained that the nails had entered by the palms of the hands and gone out the back, and that the nail which wounded the feet had entered first the right foot and then the left. He lay at the hospital for about a month, subjected to the most careful medical treatment, under which his wounds began gradually to heal. During the greater part of this time, he hardly ever spoke. Always somber and shut up in himself, his eyes were almost constantly closed. I interrogated him several times, says Dr. Ruggieri, relative to the motive which had induced him to crucify himself, and he always made this answer. The pride of man must be mortified. It must expire on the cross. Thinking that he might be restrained by the presence of my pupils, I returned repeatedly to the subject when with him alone, and he always answered me in the same terms. He was, in fact, so deeply persuaded that the supreme will had imposed upon him the obligation of dying upon the cross, that he wished to inform the tribunal of justice of the destiny which it behooved him to fulfill. Scarcely was he able to support in his hand the weight of a book when he took the prayer book and read it all day long. On the first days of August, all his wounds were completely cured, and as he felt no pain or difficulty in moving his hands or feet, he expressed a wish to go out of the hospital, that he might not, as he said, eat the bread of idleness. This request being denied to him, he passed a whole day without taking any food, and finding that his clothes were kept from him, he set out one afternoon in his shirt alone, but was soon brought back by the servants. 
The board of police, being informed of the cure of this unhappy man, very wisely gave orders that he should be conveyed to the lunatic asylum established at St. Servolo. Thither he was brought on the 20th of August, 1805. He was tranquil and obedient the first eight days, but after this time he became taciturn and refused every species of meat and drink. Force and persuasion were employed in vain, and it was impossible to make him swallow even a drop of water during six successive days. In this interval, recourse was had to nutritive baths, for which he did not express any aversion. Towards the morning of the seventh day, being importuned by another madman, he consented to take a little nourishment. He continued to eat about fifteen days, and then resumed his fast, which he prolonged during eleven. In the course of these eleven days, he had no evacuation of the belly, and voided only once about two pounds of urine. Notwithstanding this disorder of the whole animal economy, his constitution did not appear shaken, and his strength and outward appearance remained the same. In January 1806, there appeared in him symptoms of consumption. A low pulse, diminution of strength, dry tongue, etc. Towards the middle of February, his countenance became swollen with a tumor. He very seldom voided urine and had an occasional cough with purulent spittings. There was observed in him a very singular trait of insanity. He would remain immovable, exposed to the whole heat of the sun until the skin of his face began to peel off, and it was necessary to employ force to drag him into the shade. On the 2nd of April, he felt very unwell. The skin returned to his face and the lower extremities. He was attacked, however, with a frequent cough which disappeared on the 6th. At this state, an obvious laboring in his breath was observed. The pulse was very low. At length, on the morning of the 8th, he expired after a short struggle. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner. Tonight, we have a poem by the American writer Wallace Irwin. Along with humorous verses, Irwin wrote short stories, novels, and musical lyrics. His satirical work was often written under a pseudonym, with Irwin posing as the editor, translator, or discoverer of the text. The poem I'm reading is from his 1906 collection, Random Rhymes and Odd Numbers. Science for the Young Arthur, with a lighted taper, touched the fire to Grandpa's paper. Grandpa leaped a foot or higher, dropped the sheet and shouted, Fire! Arthur, wrapped in contemplation, viewed the scene of conflagration. This, he said, confirms my notion. Heat creates both light and motion.
I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As promised at the top of the show, I'd like to provide a bit more on the rewards of joining Bone and Sickle via Patreon. A monthly pledge of a mere $2 provides you access to hundreds of posts on our show blog, in which I share uh, curious tidbits from history, folklore, and films related to our general field of inquiry. Donating $4 a month brings you not one, but two short extra episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes heard on the narration and show scripts, my Krampus book and various t-shirt and mug options, the Bone and Sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. I'd like to thank a few recent patrons, uh, Jaden Mercer, Alessandro Monti, and thank you to Anne Knight for generously doubling her annual pledge. Pledges, by the way, default to month-to-month payments and can be canceled at any time. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.